Hello and welcome to the Third Sector Podcast. I'm Rebecca Cooney, Senior Features and Analysis Writer. And I'm Emily Burt, Editor of Third Sector, the UK's leading publication for the voluntary and not-for-profit sector. Each week we sit down for a quick-fire conversation about the interesting or unusual goings-on in the charity world. And this week we are discussing the Directory of Social Changes move to implement a four-day working week for all of its staff. We'll be hearing from the charity's Chief Executive, Deborah Alcock-Tyler, about how that's been going. But first... We've been away for a week, as you will have noticed, and that was because, as we mentioned, Emily was off getting married. Yay! Congratulations, <laughs> Emily. Your wedding finally went ahead, and I've seen the pictures, and it looked gorgeous. It oh. was such a lovely day, and yeah, it happened. It happened, uh, and it was it was the most beautiful day. I should say there was chaos in every single moment leading up to it. <laughs> I think we probably reorganised the wedding two or three times in the week leading up to it after Boris Johnson made his announcement about the number of uh, people at weddings being lifted. So there was a lot of uh, last minute event planning. And then we had a few wild cards as well that ranged from everything from my, now my husband, I guess. My husband was diagnosed with a stress fracture in his foot uh, about 24 hours before the vows were made. And um, then on the morning of a catering fridge caught fire in the marquee. Um, (laughs) My mum said to me afterwards, I really think the universe did not want you to marry this man. And I was like, well, you know, it's done now. Yeah. And it was honestly, it was it was a perfect day. And after the last year to be suddenly surrounded by family and friends was the most profound experience. It was. um, Yeah, it was it was really special. So and now it's done. (laughs) It is over. (laughs) Which. I honestly, I'm I'm almost as excited about the fact that this wedding is over <laughs> as I am about the fact that it happened at all. Um, but what what are you going to worry about now? I'll find something. I'll find something. So, um, but it's yes, it's great. And now, um, every disappointing day I ever go on again will be with my husband now. So. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, so I love that earlier you were like my, my husband. I guess yeah, my that's, husband. That's who that man is. Now. Weird. That's, that's who it, it is. That's very strange, but enough of that. It brings us almost seamlessly onto this week's topic by way of the dating app Bumble. Are you familiar with Bumble? I am. Uh, So this is the one where women have to send the first message, right? I believe so. And I have to say it's not one that I ever used myself, partly because um, I don't think it was actually... uh, out it hadn't been developed when I was um, dating but also because I was the worst app data ever um, my only experience with using dating apps lasted about three weeks I think <laughs> in 2014 uh, and I managed to set up exactly one date and then uh, he stood me up and I just thought you know what it's not for me wow uh, <laughs> wow yeah I mean to be honest mine is not that much more extensive so um I think I used guardian soulmates um RIP guardian soulmates no longer exists um which wasn't actually an app um it was this was back in the prehistoric days of 2014 when I didn't own a proper smartphone if you can imagine I had like one of those sort of Nokia ripoffs of a Blackberry with the little physical QWERTY keyboard vintage I loved it I absolutely adored that but so I was accessing the uh the the sort of dating on the computer rather than my phone um and yeah, I um, the first day I went on, um, he was very nice, but he only made me laugh once all evening. And I was like, that's not the basis for a relationship. Mm. Um, that's, that's not going to work. No. Uh, date number two uh, accused me of being a feminist. 
Um, That's shocking, Rebecca. You should be ashamed. I know, right? <laughs> Very early on in the day. Um, and uh, then uh, he said he was a film buff. And when I started talking about Hammer Horror, didn't really know what I was talking about. Um, and then pretended to be ill and went home early. Oh, no. Um, yeah. And then date number three was this mild-mannered Indian dude in a tweed suit that likes heavy metal and ABBA and the Backstreet Boys and listener, I married him. Yes, so that's, that would be my online dating story. So, so yeah, not that much more extensive. We, yeah, we know nothing about it. I think that's what we've just established. Yeah. Uh, the one thing I would say about online dating is it's hard work to do online dating. Um, I noticed that in three dates. I've got a lot of friends who've said that. And it turns out it's quite hard work to actually work for these online dating companies, right? Right. And this is why we're not just reminiscing there is a point to all of this i promise the reason we are talking about bumble is because earlier this month bumble temporarily closed all of its offices for a week to combat workplace stress so the company's 700 staff worldwide were told to switch off and focus on themselves and one senior executive said on twitter that the app's founder whitney wolf heard had made the move after she quote correctly intuited our collective burnout so the company has had a really busy year. They launched on the stock market. They had rapid growth in user numbers as people have been, you know, stuck at home during lockdown, thinking it would be nice if they had someone to go out for dinner with. So it's been a really busy year for the app. And they are saying, you know, staff are exhausted. So a spokeswoman for Bumble said that during the week off, a few customer support staff had worked that week in case the app, you know, had any issues or the users experienced problems with it. But they were then given a week off in lieu at a different time. So I think it's a, it's a really interesting thing. And it, it's, I think it's very telling that this decision made headlines around the world. And that sort of speaks to our working cultures. Um, I mean, what, what do you think about this idea of like a week long staff or staff holiday? I think I completely agree with your point that it's interesting that it made headlines. I'm, I'm really torn on this, actually. Um, with things like burnout, I always think of a, a friend of mine who she used to be a management consultant and she worked for one of the, the large consultancy firms. And she ended up with horrible burnout, like she was just exhausted. She was struggling to work, mm. struggling to really communicate with friends, really low, really angry, actually, like just to the point where it was kind of paralyzing and really miserable. And eventually things started to get a bit better. And she sort of said to me, oh, you know, the company's been really good. They've given me some time off. They've offered counselling. They've been great. And to be honest, like, I'm sure that isn't always the case. And that's probably better than some companies. It very much seemed like in her case, it was the company's fault she was feeling like this. Mm. And I just thought, like, well, they're the ones that broke you. They don't get credit for providing the sellotape for you to stick yourself back together. Um, and she's in a different job now. I'm much happier. But kind of with this Bumble thing, that, that's why I'm kind of in two minds about it, because I guess it depends where the staff are on that road to burnout. You know, mm. if, if it's a preventative measure, then fantastic. And look, obviously no one's going to complain about a week off, right? But if it's kind of acknowledgement of where you are already, then I still think the company needs to be thinking about what it can do day to day to stop it from getting to that point. Um, and, you know, we have had a weird and exceptional year. We've had the pandemic. It's thrown up all sorts of unexpected challenges for companies. And of course, we all know even more so for charities. Absolutely. And charities, you know, burnout and well-being in the sector at the moment is something that we have looked at before. Um, we surveyed 350 charity workers at the beginning of the year and more than 94% said that they had experienced stress, overwhelm or burnout over the past year. And when they were asked to identify the main causes of these feelings, you know, 80% identified the COVID-19 crisis. Um, but then almost two thirds said that it was poor work-life balance. 
And, you know, in, in the last year, particularly, more than 90% of respondents said that they had taken on extra hours at work or they'd taken on more work. So this issue of time and of balance and work and life and having boundaries on how much time employees are spending working, that is an issue that charities are working. And I completely agree with you that, you know, giving someone just a, a week off is, you know, it's a sticking plaster unless you're also looking at longer, more meaningful long-term cultural changes that ensure, you know, your your staff aren't being driven to, uh, you know, breaking point in the first place. Um, but there are things, there are longer-term things that companies could be looking at to, 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 to embed, like, better cultures. Right. So could the solution be a four-day week? In May, the Directory of Social Change announced that it had permanently moved to a four-day working week for all of its full-time staff. The training and publishing charity announced that all staff would work the same number of hours, but condensed into four days, with some staff members working Monday to Thursday, others working Tuesday to Friday. And that allows all employees to take a three day weekend. So the organisation's got 32 staff, uh, although they have got four part time staff members and their hours and working days are not affected by that change. So this move was born out of the DSC's operational response to COVID-19 last year. They had 70% of their staff furloughed and this led to staff operating as a small skeleton crew just trying to keep things going. So a four-day week was introduced to make sure people were getting regular breaks from you know, what were unprecedented pressures of operating during the pandemic. And it worked so well that the organisation decided to carry on with it and have established it as the norm for all full-time staff. And I have to say, I think this sounds fantastic. I love bank holidays and the idea of having one every week sounds amazing. And I would happily get up earlier or work a bit later for that. Like, yes, please. That sounds great. Yeah. What did you think of it? With my uh, business journalist hat on, as opposed to my charity journalist hat on, I would say I think there are huge benefits. There would be, could be huge benefits to the proper and correct implementation of a four day working week. Uh, It's highly likely that you would see greater productivity among your staff. You'd see improved well-being. Um, you know, looking at the big picture, you'd see environmental benefits because people would be commuting less to get into the office. You know, obviously, we're all working from home at the moment anyway. But, you know, if we are going to be starting to move back to that that sort of commuting office life, that's another thing. Reduce that and, and you get benefits there. Um, and there is, in fact, there's a national campaign about this exact subject, the four day week campaign. Um, and they are a great campaign group. Um, they're doing great work around this and they're far more well versed about the benefits of it than I am. I'll put the website address in the uh, in the show notes. So they call for um, companies to implement 32 hour working weeks with no reduction in pay. So that is just that you you lose a day of work, but you don't have your pay reduced. And that point about reducing pay is absolutely crucial. Because if you cut pay in line with reduced hours, that's not a four day working week, that's a part time job, right? Right. You know, people are taking lots of different approaches to to the four day working week. And then they're trying to figure out exactly how this is done. Um, And but yes, so four day week campaign says 32 hours, uh, no reduction in pay. Do I think this is something that could be widely implemented on a societal level? Mm, I wish I was more optimistic about it. Um, You know, since the 2008 financial recession, uh, we are one of the most overworked and one of the most unproductive countries in Europe. Um, The pandemic definitely won't have helped that. Um, But overwork, presenteeism, absenteeism, you know, these are massive problems across all sectors uh, in this country. And I don't 
see that changing on a wide level anytime soon. Um, and I think if we're going to be looking on a huge scale at, at the four day working week, it's also really important that we look at the challenges around implementing it as well, because it's one thing to implement a four day working week for white collar workers, um, for people with desk based office jobs. It's a completely different challenge for blue collar workers, for people in low income jobs or people who are in precarious work. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a great idea, but to do it well, it would be a really big I mean, it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be big and complicated, but, you know, it, it, it would be to implement practically. And also thinking about people like NHS workers, we can't, you know, couldn't just put everyone working in the NHS onto a four day week unless you then are hiring loads of people to have that extra cover. I mean, presumably there are certain jobs where actually you can't extend the working day safely, right, as well. Right. Um, which is obviously, uh, so you're talking about a 32 hour week, which would be reducing it. But obviously what DSC has done is just to increase, is to cram those working hours into the same week. And obviously that that would never work for certain jobs. The four day week ha- actually has standards um, of four day working weeks, which it awards to companies. So there is the gold standard and the gold standard for them is uh, 32 hours, no reduction in pay. DSC is currently working to their silver standard. So they're doing the next best thing, which is 35 hours in four days and there's quite a lot of companies which are are, are are you know following this model at the moment and to to steer away from my general kind of malaise and gloominess about the state <laughs> of our society i do think it's absolutely phenomenal to see organizations taking the initiative in trying to figure out exactly what those four day weeks can look like within their own organizations how they can make that work for their teams and this is exactly what we're seeing at the dsc yeah, and that's really interesting that kind of you're saying actually the pandemic may not have helped that situation because I, I wonder if, you know, we are going to also see people, you know, who've been working from home who maybe have had have been furloughed, had to take a bit of time mm. out and have had to reassess priorities a little bit and, and you know, whether we're going to want a kind of sort of more efficient, less draining working situation for a lot of people. I think that could be really interesting. So as we said, this was announced back in May at the DSC and they've been implementing this system for a few months before that. So I caught up with DSC's chief executive, Deborah Alcock-Tyler, to ask how it's all been going. I started by asking her what inspired the charity to keep the four-day working week as a permanent fixture. Well, actually, Rebecca, it wasn't done as a result of the pandemic. We'd been thinking for ages about wanting to do a four-day working week and I'd been reading up around it and I'd actually... um I read um, Rutger Bregman's uh, A Utopia for Realists and he has a section in there about, you know, a, a different kind of working weeks and things like that. And so I'd already started talking to my trustees about this idea and they, you know, in principle, OK, you know, but do a paper, do the research, put the pros and cons in, you know. And then, of course, it was 2019. It all got a bit distracted because we didn't have a great year in 2019 and then of course the pandemic came and I didn't have to do any of that (laughs) I just could just introduce it so we already wanted to do it what the pandemic did was give us a fantastic opportunity to do it without having to go for the fuffle and kerfuffle and kerfaffle Um, but actually it was particularly noticeable how good it was because when we put most of our staff into furlough so about 70% of our staff were furlough there was only 13 of us left and people were just knackered they were absolutely exhausted and I knew that they couldn't keep working at that kind of pace. And I knew also that it's not about giving people the odd hour off here and there. That isn't actually any good. You need People need consecutive time off. So we said that it's a... Um, so really, we talk about four-day working week, but for us, it wasn't actually about a four-day working week. It was about a three-day weekend. That was the priority, was three consecutive days off as opposed to four-day working week. 
Okay, brilliant. And what were some of the challenges you found with introducing it? Um, Well, the main thing in the beginning was really kind of like working out holidays and things like that. It got, you know, trying to make sure that we cover happened. And in the end, what we did was we, we ended up with a Friday crew and a Monday crew. So we wanted to make sure we were always available for the charities that we serve. So and and as far as possible, we let staff choose which day they wanted to work. I mean, it wasn't not everybody could have that choice because obviously we had to have people from each department on, you know, those days, Mondays mm. to Fridays. But basically what happens is some people work Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday and have Friday off. And other people work Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday and have the Monday off. Um, so so working that out at the beginning and then and then sort of working out meetings and rescheduling things like that was quite challenging um but i think the hard i think the hardest thing was this whole business about trying to work out holidays because it all got very confusing because you know you like because people have got a day off in the week in the way anyway it, it all got quite confusing but on the whole it wasn't really that difficult to implement especially because we talked to our staff about it and also the other thing we did was we said like we do with everything at dsc it's an experiment so if it doesn't work then we'll go back and do it the olden way, you know. But yeah. actually, a couple of people weren't that keen on it in the beginning because they thought, you know, workloads and stuff. But in the end, everybody came around to it. And so we decided to make it a permanent feature. Brilliant. And I'm really curious. So did people tend to prefer to have Friday off or Monday off? Well, it's hard to know. We, so we have fewer people working on a Friday than on a Monday. So, so, for example, if you've got a department of three people in it, you're more likely to have two people working on Monday and having the Friday off. So we have a smaller crew on a Friday than we do on a Monday. So people generally clearly prefer a Friday, but not that it's a problem for others. People just adapt and get used to, you know, however it is that that, that it works for them, really. Yeah. And as you said, there's kind of there was a sort of teething period of working out who's working when. But actually, once you know, you can kind of run with it. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Brilliant. And what have some of the benefits been? Happy staff, honestly, really happy staff. They are positive, they're motivated. I would say productivity's gone up, actually, rather than down as a result of this. We did a wellness survey at the beginning of the year and we asked people about, you know, what they liked, what was working for them at DSC. And overwhelmingly, the three-day weekend came up as a really massive positive. And I think now people would be very resistant if we want tried to take it away because they've got so used to it but they were saying that for them personally of course it meant they had time to exercise to do those kind of household chores that you have to cram in you know in the evenings or at weekends mm. they now had proper weekends because they had a day when they could get rid of you know the washing or whatever these things are that they needed to do so and then for, from a DSC point of view as I said happy staff productivity's gone up people are just after having three days off, they're just more enthusiastic that day than they come mm. into work, you know. So, yeah. So how have people been finding the sort of extra hours that because you're doing a system where they kind of just do more hours in fewer days yeah. and, and people sort of adjusting to that? Yeah, that's actually fine. I mean, we've got temporary hiatus at the moment because we're doing a little bit of a sort of short term furlough thing. But what was basically happening is, is that so it's only works out about an extra hour and a half a day or something like that. Mm. And to be honest, that, that hour and a half a day would be when people were commuting anyway. So it's not cutting into any personal time because people yeah. would have been on a bus or a train or a, a bicycle or what have you. Um, but also alongside it, what we've done is we've introduced like this notion of trust. So we basically say to people that we don't expect them to do a, you know, eight until six or, you know, whatever the timings are 
on those days. What we expect them to do is get their jobs done. And so if, for example, somebody needs a Monday afternoon, an hour or an hour at the end of every day during the working day because they've got childcare issues or they've got to go and pick the kids up from school, we're really cool with that. We're not going to count your hours. Just make sure yeah. the job gets done. So if people then want to catch up in the evening later in the evening or they want to do it on a Sunday morning or whatever, we don't mind about that. We say, like, we're not going to count your hours. We trust you to do the work that needs to be done. And again, that works tremendously well. People are do, I would say, above and beyond, actually, you know. But it, it also, because I saw a debate on Twitter about um, this notion about, pe- you know, that we should introduce bans on people communicating out of hours about work stuff. Mm. And I think that's so selfish because, you know, what about those members of my staff who actually wanted to take the Monday afternoon because they needed time with their kids and wanted to work on Sunday afternoon? I'm saying to them that but you're not allowed to actually send any emails. You've got to save everything up so it's extra work for you. So I think that if we if we just have this sort of um, more flexible approach to when people do their work, people manage their lives better. It's not, if you think about it, Rebecca, it's just not really that natural a way to be as a human being, to cram like personal life happens after five and you know before whatever (laughs) you know and work time happens there I think a much much more flexible approach to it just on principle just makes more sense yeah no absolutely um and so yeah it's interesting you were talking there about kind of this would have been commuting times how do you foresee this you know when people are starting to go back into the office well DSC has become a remote working organization so we closed our London office we still have our Liverpool office which is our head office but that's again that's the choice for staff if they want to go in and work there um people managed before they will Mm. find their ways around it you know and I, I imagine what will happen is people will probably commute the way they did before and they'll catch up on the work that they need to do when they need to do it. I mean, I will say that I find that when you trust people, they get more efficient, if you see what I mean. So that Mm. if they know that... So if you're being really flexible with them and really supportive and giving them the time and trusting them and not counting their hours they like get up a little bit earlier and stick an hour's worth of work in before they then have to take the kids before they then get into the office and things like that. So, you know, it does very much operate on a trust basis. No, that makes sense. And so if another organisation was thinking about doing this, what sort of advice would you be offering them? I, I would say just try it. Like, don't get into all the ins and outs and write great long papers and pros and cons because you'll talk yourselves out of it. Do it as an experiment. Say to your staff, look, we want to try this out. We're going to try it out for two months. Here's the basic conditions, you know, because you have to have some rules around it, obviously. Mm. And uh, and then at the end of two months, let's evaluate what it's felt like and how people have liked it and then take it from there. I mean, honestly, so I think we we get too hung up on, like, doing papers and having to, like, demonstrate value instead of saying, you know what, let's, let's try it which is what happened at DSC. We tried it mm. and it worked and people really loved it. And I promise you, people will love it. You know, especially if you, especially, however, if you, like, alongside it, you build in that kind of trustworking model that, you know, we're not going to count your hours. I mean, the reality is, Rebecca, in any organisation, you're always going to get somebody who swings the lead. But we shouldn't be planning work life around the one or two people who cheat. We should mm. be planning work life around the people who largely completely step up. And if anybody is really taking the piss, you, you deal with that separately. Brilliant. Uh, well, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Rebecca. Lovely to talk to you. Each week we bring you our mini coronavirus care package. Again, Rebecca, we must look at updating the name. <laughs> uh, our good news stories that we have spotted in the sector.
So this week we've gone from one from within our very own Third Sector editorial team. Woohoo! Woo! Andy Ricketts, uh, who is Third Sector's news editor and resident Star Wars enthusiast who's been on the podcast a couple of times. Uh, he's got a place on the actual physical London Marathon in October. It's uh, so exciting. It is so exciting. Uh, I think we might be more excited about it than he is, but... Like, well, we don't have to run it. We're going yeah. to sit on the sidelines and eat popcorn. <laughs> yeah, and offer sandwiches occasionally. Um, I don't know. It seems like a Throw water. Yes. Yeah. Um, so he's going to be running it in aid of Skylarks, which is uh, the charity that Haymarket has a corporate partnership with. Uh, they work with uh, children with learning difficulties and disabilities in the Richmond area. Uh, really lovely little charity. Uh, and they do fantastic work. Um, so, yeah, he promises me he will have uh, this uh, his uh giving page up and running by the time we get to Friday when this podcast goes out. Uh, but the URL, if you do want to donate, is um, uk.virginmoneygiving.com forward slash Andy Ricketts. And Ricketts is R-I-C-K-E-T-T-S. Uh, you'll also be able to find links to it on his Twitter feed as well, I should expect. And we'll probably have him on the podcast to talk about it uh, in a bit more detail at some point as well. Absolutely. I mean, I think obviously we'll have to sort him out with a Skylux jersey, which will be very important. But could we also make him run in a third sector sandwich board with covers, uh, our favourite covers on the front and back and just have a little marketing exercise going at the same. We'll ask him. We'll ask him how he feels about that. Yeah, I mean, mean, you're asking me. You're his boss. So, you know, (laughs) you could just decide to do that. Oh, I don't, I don't, I don't work under those managerial structures. Absolutely not. It's all got to be, he's got to want to do it. Um, anyway, what else have you got for us, Rebecca? Uh, so then we've also got a really interesting little news story that popped into my inbox earlier in the week. Uh, so, uh, the team from Challenging Motor Neuron Disease, uh, Challenging MND, um, they have smashed the Guinness World Record for traveling the Thames the fastest in a pedalo. So this is, um, I think they had the record previously and uh, they've smashed it again. So this is the, the challenge is to do 128 miles down the Thames from Lechlade to Teddington Lock, which incidentally is, is where Third Sector's offices used to be based, literally overlooking that. Wow. Um, so that's 128 miles on a pedalo. Um, and so they completed the challenge in 51 hours and 59 seconds. Um, I love how they were like, we're not going another minute over. Like, 59 seconds um, only. Yeah. 59 seconds. Yep. Yeah. Beating their previous record by seven hours. And not only did they beat their own record, uh, they are also the first team ever to complete it nonstop, apparently. Um, so as you can see, that is a lot of traveling. Also, I don't know if you've ever got on a pedalo on holiday i have i have it's really hard work it's hard on the uh hard on the old shins yeah you see it and it looks kind of funny and relaxed and they're kind of lying down and then you get on and you're like oh my god this is actually i'm actually having to really work at this but also the tent the thames has powerful currents as well it's hard enough to do it on like a still boating pond but um yeah i well, congratulations to to this remarkable team who've done what sounds like a very uh, major achievement. <laughs> so they travelled through the nights and battled torrential rain. And this team was led by Alex Gibson, who's a GB decathlete, and he was diagnosed with motor neuron disease four years ago. So they began this attempt on the 16th of June. Um, and he was joined by ex-England rugby union player Andy Long, Alan Thomas and Joe Reed. And yeah, it sounds like a hell of a challenge and yeah to to break that record and and to do it's just amazing i don't think they quite know how much they've raised yet but they have smashed this record so fantastic news for them congrats to them both 
that's it from us we'll be back with another episode soon so make sure you subscribe to this the third sector podcast on your favorite podcast app to be the first to know about it until then i'm emily burt and i'm rebecca cooney and our producer is lindsay riley at rethink audio we'll see you next week <laughs>